You may be seated. Uh, It's hot in here this morning. I wore this big old heavy wool coat and I'm getting rid of it. Uh, I'm going to share with you a little bit. I was supposed to be, last weekend, I was supposed to be in Salem, Connecticut, preaching for the Congregational Church of Salem, pastored by one Jonathan Cakley. Some of you may remember that fella. He's related to some of the folks around here. He's one of our boys, grew up here, found the Lord here, was discipled here, went off to seminary. Now he's working on his doctorate degree and uh, just doing a great job down there in Salem. But some of you remember we had a little bit of messy weather last week. As I was praying about what I would preach when I went down there, the Lord really gave me a word. A lot of you were involved in it, you know, during the first of the year when people were posting on Facebook and they were saying, my word for the year is courage. My word for the year is change. My word for the year is uh, redemption. I, I don't know, there were so many of them. And I, like everybody else, I say, Lord, what's my word for the year? And uh, I was preparing to preach this message that I'm preaching right now down at Jonathan's. And I realized about halfway through the week how disappointed I was that I didn't get to go down there and preach this message. And then the Lord spoke to me and said, I'm not going to let you preach that message until it's real to you. And I said, well, it is real to me. And he said, not yet. Not yet. During the course of my preparation, I pulled up an old article uh, that I had uh, found and saved on my computer, and the Lord just brought it to my mind, and it was the record of a sermon preached on July 8th, 1741, by a fellow by the name of Jonathan Edwards, who pastored right down here in Northampton, Massachusetts. Jonathan Edwards was one of the key figures in the first Great Awakening that began in the mid-1700s. He was invited down to Enfield, Connecticut, to preach at the uh, uh, First Congregational Church, or First, I don't remember the name of the church now, but it was, I think, First Congregational or First Christian Church in Enfield, Connecticut. Enfield at that time, uh, the church there <coughs> had grown very apathetic. Uh, the people had gone off on other pursuits. Their, their, their zeal for the Lord had waned. And the pastor invited this great preacher from Northampton down to preach. And uh, Jonathan Edwards uh, arrived a week early. And uh, the, the pastor thought, well, since he's here... I might as well go have this great preacher from Northampton preach. And Jonathan Edwards was sitting on the platform and he was running, he had a little leather briefcase and he was running through some sermons that he had brought with him. And his fingers fell on a, on a particular sermon. And the title of that sermon was Sinners in the Hand of an Angry God. It literally is one of the most famous sermons of the First Great Awakening. And he said, well, I don't, I don't know. You know, I preached this once and it fell on deaf ears. It had no impact at all. And, and he said the Spirit just kept urging him to, to preach this sermon. So he went to the platform and he began to preach. Tell you a little bit about Jonathan Edwards. He was so, con- so concerned that he would get glory rather than God. He would often read his, his sermons verbatim, word for word, in a monotone voice, holding his paper like this and rarely looking up. Exciting. And they had services then that were uh, two hours, three hours, four hours long. I guarantee you this service will not go a minute over three and a half hours. Uh, 
But what, what, to, to introduce this message, now some of you saw on Facebook that I, I, I put on the message that the title of the message today is, Who is the Greatest Evangelist? That was a trap. I just wanted to get conversation going. The real title of this sermon is, Living Life with Eternity in View. Living life with eternity in view. Now, this preacher would often be seen in the fields around Northampton. He would carry these gemstones in his pocket, and he would pull these gemstones out, and he would hold them over his eye, and he would look to the heavens, and he would shout, Oh, God, stamp eternity on my eyeballs. And that has become my word for the year. It's a bunch of words, but I'm a preacher. I can't just do one word. Oh, God stamp eternity on my eyeballs. And I hope this morning that I can convince you to make that a prayer for yourself. Oh God, stamp eternity on my eyeballs. Now what I want to do is I want to read just a few short paragraphs out of that sermon. I said to myself as I read it, my goodness, if this man preached this sermon today, he would be ridden out of town on a rail and tarred and feathered. But I want to share with you what happened, just, just to get us started this morning. He, he, he stepped to the pulpit, and he looked at the congregation, and then he began with these words. The bow of God's wrath is bent, and the arrow made ready on the string. And justice bends the arrow at your heart and strains the bow. And it is nothing but the mere pleasure of God and that of an angry God without any promise or obligation at all that prevents the arrow one moment from being made drunk with your blood. Oh, how painful his words were to the unrepentant. Like hot molten steel upon the flesh, the preacher himself stood deathly still behind the pulpit. He read straight from his notes, rarely lifting his head. The few times he did look up, he stared toward the back of the room to one fixed spot. It was only then that you could see the tears that flowed from his eyes as he continued. The God that holds you over the pit of hell, much as one holds a spider or some loathsome insect over the fire, abhors you and is dreadfully provoked. His wrath towards you burns like fire. He looks upon you as worthy of nothing else but to be cast into the fire. He is of purer eyes than to bear to have you in his sight. You are 10,000 times so abominable in his eyes as the most hateful, venomous serpent in ours. The impact of these words now brought a frightening revelation upon the room. Religious, backslidden, and worldly men and women who gathered that day suddenly realized they were horribly doomed. Then they winced as if in great pain and discomfort, some could no longer hold back the tears and began to weep. Even still, Edwards continued to press. You have offended him infinitely more than a stubborn rebel did his prince, and yet nothing but his hand holds you from falling into the fire every moment. Tis to be ascribed to nothing else that you did not go to hell last night. 
but that God's hand has held you up. There is no other reason to be given why you hadn't gone to hell since you have sat here in the house of God provoking his pure eyes by your sinful, wicked manner of attending this solemn worship. Yes, there is nothing else that is to be given as a reason why you don't this very moment drop down into hell. Oh, sinner, consider the fearful danger you are in. A woman screamed, Oh God, I'm going to hell. What shall I do? He preached on. Here's the results. This is in historical record. The shrieks and cries continued to grow as the preacher continued to ask for their attention. The commotion in the room had reached a fever pitch. Cries and shouts of sheer terror filled the room and were heard throughout the surrounding streets. Many had taken a firm hold of their seats for fear of falling straight through the floor. They were convinced they were sliding down into the pits of hell itself. They had clawed at the wood pews front of them, digging their nails deep into the wood. Others clung to one another like a man drowning in deep water. Some fell to the ground as if it were brought down by an axe. They lay motionless upon the floor. Those that once stood now clung to the post of the church, believing the ground beneath them was giving away. God had done it. Enfield had finally been humbled. That was the beginning of the first great awakening. There is a scripture, I just, I'm going to read it for you, just one verse, and then I want to summarize the passage. It is found in Luke chapter 16. If you're inclined to go there, you can look at it, Luke chapter 16. And here are the words. He answered, Then I beg you, Father, send Lazarus to my father's house, for I have five brothers. Let him warn them, so that they will not also come to this place of torment. The whole of the passage reads this way. I'm going to summarize it. There was a rich man who was dressed in purple and fine linen and lived in luxury every day. At his gate lay a beggar whose name was Lazarus, covered with sores and longing to eat. What, eat what fell from the rich man's table. Even the dogs came and licked his wounds. Then the time came when the beggar died, <coughs> and the angels carried him to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried. In hell, where he was in torment, he looked up and saw Abraham far away. With Lazarus at his side. So he called to him, Father Abraham, have pity on me and send Lazarus to dip the tip of his finger in water and, and put it on my tongue <coughs> and cool my tongue because I am in great agony. But Abraham replied, Son, remember that in your lifetime you received good things while Lazarus received bad things, but now he is comforted here and you are in agony. And besides all of this, between us there is a great there's a great gap between us so that none from here can come to you and you cannot come to this place. He answered then, said, Then I beg you, Father, send Lazarus to my father's house, for I have five brothers. Let, let him warn them so that they will not also come to this place of torment. And Abraham replied, They have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear him. To let them hear them. No, Father Abraham, he said, but if someone from the dead would go to them, they will repent. 
Abraham said to him, If they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, they will not be convinced even if someone rises from the dead. Will you pray with me for just a minute? Father, you have burned this thing into my spirit. And even as Pastor Brian preached last week, reaffirming that the vision of this church is to win the lost. Father, would you inflame that vision in all of our hearts? It is certainly engraving itself on my consciousness in this past two or three weeks that we are called to win, to equip, and then to send men to the lost that they may repent and be saved. I believe you've given me this word for me first, Father, and then for this church and maybe for other churches. But I pray that this morning you may inflame us with this word. In Jesus' name, amen. I want you to notice two things about this guy. First thing, uh, his first concern was personal relief. Abraham, Father Abraham, I'm in great torment. Would, would, would you just allow Lazarus to, to dip his finger just get a drop of cold water and bring it and put it on my tongue because I'm in great torment. And of course, Abraham said, no. His second concern then, and this is an interesting thing, his second concern then were for his five brothers who are still living carelessly and selfishly doing their thing on earth. And notice... How once that deny for personal comfort was denied, he immediately turned to his brothers. He forgot about his own desperate desire for relief and was willing, uh, if only his brothers could be warned. Send somebody to warn my brothers not to come to this place, suddenly living a life of immense selfishness and disregard. He is overwhelmingly concerned <coughs> for somebody else. Notice how the pains of hell changes a person. Someone said, a fellow said to him one time, I won't believe in hell. And his reply was, you will three seconds after you die. The world has seen some unbelievably great and effective missionaries and evangelists down through the years. But I want to posit to you this morning that the greatest missionary the world would ever see would be a soul just released from hell. Imagine what would happen if this rich man said to Abraham, send someone to warn my brothers. And Abraham would say, I'm going to send you. For one week. I'm going to release you from this torment. I'm going to send you. Now we know that's not going to happen. But I'm, I want to make an appointment. I want to make an appointment. Appoint I washed my tongue this morning. And I can't do a thing with it. I want to make a point today. Imagine what would happen. If that rich man. Himself were be to, uh, allowed to return to earth. He would go straight to his father's house. He would not walk. He would run. 
he would be shouting as he came down the road, Brothers! Brothers! Listen to me. He would pound on the door and he would scream at them. He would cry at them. He would say, please repent. Turn around. Go a different direction. I have seen the terror. I've been drowned in the agony. Turn from your wickedness before it's too late. Do you find that hard to imagine? His brothers, I'm sure, would think he'd gone stark-raging mad, but... Their, his, their ridicule would not deter him. They, it wouldn't silence him in the least. He would plead with them. He would put his arms around their ankles. He would cry out to them. He would beat their chest. He would say, please listen to me. I have been there. I have suffered that. I've known that torment. Will you not repent and turn from your wickedness? Then he would turn his attention to all of his friends and his neighbors, his old girlfriends, his ex-wives, his forgotten acquaintances. He would even begin to warn his enemies of the hellfire that was to come. Before long, this guy would be scouring heaven and earth for souls to warn about the dangers and the reality of hell. He would never get tired. He would never allow himself to get distracted. He wouldn't stop to enjoy life and the fullness of life. He wouldn't care whether or not he was persecuted. He wouldn't bother to go eat or sleep or drink. He wouldn't get himself all wrapped up in worldly affairs. There would be times when he wouldn't eat drink or sleep there would be things he would deliberately miss out on because they were nothing in the view of eternity they wouldn't amount to a hill of beans when eternity is at stake no my friend I'm telling you we have not yet seen missionary fervor as we would see from a soul who just was released from hell Now, why is it that we would expect a soul just released from hell to act so desperately while Christians who preach this and claim to believe this act so nonchalantly? Is this stuff true or not? Do we believe it? Or not? Is there truly a heaven to be gained and a hell to be shunned? Is there really life after death? Let me ask you a question. How many of you here believe there is life after death? Come on. It's not a trick question. How many of you really believe that those who do not receive Christ are going to face eternity just as surely as you are. But not under the same conditions. If there truly is, is there truly an eternity in which every soul on earth, every soul on earth will live in one of only two places. I ask this because if there is, if heaven and hell and eternity are real, if they are for real, then most of us ought to be living vastly different 
lives. Just imagine. If the souls now in hell were allowed to come back to earth, do you think they would live their lives differently? Do you think they would make the same stupid mistakes of forgetting God, rejecting Jesus? Do you think they would, they would continue to squeeze God little by little out of their lives in favor of the pleasures of this world? Do you think they would carelessly allow sin and selfishness to rule their lives? You'll have to pardon me this morning. The enemy's really trying to shut my throat up. What would they tell us about living our lives? If that rich man came running through the back door of this church, what message do you think he would bring? What would they view those released from hell as the most important things in life? I'm convinced that they would tell us that the only true valuable things in life are things that pertain to the next life. The only things that really matter in this life are the things that have bearing on the next life. Eternity gives meaning to life. Without the next life, nothing else really matters. If there is no eternity, <coughs> if there is no hereafter, if it really doesn't matter at all what we do here, we should do what the Apostle Paul and others have said. Let us eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we shall die. But contrary to what the evolutionists teach us, we don't just die and turn to dust. Our bodies do. But that eternal spirit that comes from God lives on. If there is a hereafter... And if you're sitting here and you have not acknowledged Jesus as your Savior, you need to be listening too. If there really is a hereafter, if there really is a reckoning day, then what we do today and tomorrow and the day after that takes on infinite and eternal significance. Everything we do ought to be done with eternity in mind. That's what Jonathan Edwards was saying when he held that gemstone up and he cried out to the heavens, Oh God, stamp eternity on my eyeballs. Everything we say must have eternity in mind. Our entire lives should be being lived preparing ourselves and preparing others to face eternity. We must make our lives count. Count for what? Big bank accounts, stock portfolio, fine houses, expensive cars, the best education, fame, fortune, power, respect. We must continually ask ourselves about our thoughts, about our words, about our activities. Is this going to, is this going to draw me toward heaven? And more importantly, perhaps, is this going to draw others toward Christ?
Would this help save some soul? Is, or is this really just a waste of time? Will this count in eternity? Let me tell you what God is convicting me of. The amount of time I waste on activities and thinking processes that mean absolutely nothing. They are useless. They are useless when men are dying. This tells us something, Christian. We ought to be doing everything within our power. Even if men think us mad. Even in the midst of mockery. Even in the midst of those who try to shame us. We should be doing everything within our power. To convince men of the reality of a coming eternity. Who cares? Whether or not the stock market goes up or down. Who cares? Or not. If we balance the federal budget. Perhaps you have the best job. The biggest house. The fastest car. Or maybe you drive a piece of junk. And you got the worst job in town. And the smallest house. And the slowest rattle trap piece of junk. To drive around in town. Who cares? When it's all said and done. And eternity is swallowed up. And time is gone. And this world has been renewed. What does it matter? What is life all about anyway? What are we supposed to be doing while we're here? And I'm sorry. This has not been helped by that flashy television preacher who says you can live your best life now. You can have it all. God wants you to be rich. He doesn't help our cause. If you'll send me an offering, God will bless you now. Here in this time. Here's what Dwight L. Moody. You've heard that name. Dwight L. Moody was born just down here in Northfield, Massachusetts. One of the great preachers in our history. This is what he said. He said, I have made it a rule. I think this is great. I have made it a rule that I will not let one day pass without speaking to someone about their soul salvation. And if it so happens, they don't hear the gospel from the lips of others, there will be 365 souls who will hear the gospel from my lips. Oh God, stamp eternity on our eyeballs. Charles Spurgeon declared this, if sinners be damned, at least let them leap to hell over our dead bodies. And if they perish, let them perish with our arms wrapped around their knees, imploring them to stay. If hell must be filled, let it be filled in the teeth of our exertions, and let not one go unwarned and unprayed for. God gave me a vision the other night. And in that, it was great. In that vision, I had so many people. I've been in the ministry. I've been in this area here for 52 years. And I have been blessed to be, be involved in so many lives. 
And I had a vision, and in his vision, I just saw faces of, of kids that, that, that used to be in the New Life Singers and kids that were in our church and kids who grew up and now have gone off in the ministry. And they came and they said, thank you, Pastor Mike, for sharing the gospel. We thank you for teaching me the word. Thank you. And then there was a whole other group of people that stood off to the side and looked at me with eyes filled with hatred who said, why didn't you tell me? You were too busy. You were too preoccupied. You had too many things to do. Why didn't you tell me? If we truly would live life with eternity in view, it would have three very important effects on our lives. In fact... I think it would revolutionize our lives. Revolution, revolutionize. Yeah, revolutionize. It would cause a revolution in our life. And, and, the, time, and the lives, it, I think it would revolutionize lives all around us. Three important things. First of all, if we lived with eternity in view, it would cause us finally to get our priorities straight. So many of us are so twisted. We're all twisted and wrapped up in our ideas of why we're in this world and what God expects us to do. You know, the biggest trick that Satan has in his bag, and he uses it with great effectiveness, is to convince us that trash and trivialities are more important while the truly things are trivial. The truly important things are trivial. We would begin to spend our lives working only for those things that have eternal significance. Temporary stuff would just not occupy or waste our time. We would evaluate and judge everything, everything in life by the value it holds to the cause of the kingdom and souls that are dying without Christ. These are the questions asked by the great missionary. As you notice, I'm, I'm not telling you who the greatest evangelist is, I'm, but I'm quoting a lot of evangelists. Great missionary David Livingston, who brought the gospel to the heart of Africa. I will just mention, I have stood at the foot of the statue of David Livingston in Zimbabwe on the edge of Victoria Falls, and I said to my friend, I'm going to preach. He said, now? I said, yeah, I'm not going to stand here at the feet of this man and not preach the gospel. But this is what David Livingston said. He said, I will place no value, listen carefully, I will place no value on anything I have or may possess except in relationship to the kingdom of Christ. If anything will advance the interest of that kingdom, it shall be given away or kept only as by the giving or keeping of it, I shall but most promote the glory of him to whom I owe all of my hopes in time and eternity. Do you hear what this man is saying? He evaluated everything in his life. Everything in his life was evaluated by its usefulness to God. If it was helpful to the cause of Christ, if it was helpful in promoting the gospel, if it was helpful in bringing men to Christ, I'm going to keep it. If it won't do that, I'm getting rid of it. I don't want my mind and my time and my, my energy to be wasted on things that don't matter for eternity. 
Second thing it would do, it would harden us against the trials of the temptations that we face in life. They just wouldn't matter anymore. We spend way too much time worrying and, and, and fussing over and struggling over things that mean absolutely nothing. We spend too much time crying and complaining and carrying on about the troubles that befall us. And since none of this will really matter in the end, why does it matter so much to us now? So then, we should not be so easily affected by life's temporary trials. Have you ever heard the phrase, this too shall pass? I've said it often, if you're enjoying great times right now and everything's going great and boy the money's there and the job's there and life is there and everybody likes me and the dog doesn't bite me anymore, this too shall pass. And if you're going through the worst of times, the biggest struggles, the hardest difficulties, this too will pass. Here's what Paul wrote to the second book of, in the, the Corinthian church in 2 Corinthians chapter 4. Listen to this. This is so good. We fix our eyes not on what is seen, but on what is unseen. For what is seen is temporary. Temporary. I want everybody to say that word. Temporary. Everything we see in this room, save the souls here that are in Christ, is temporary. Yeah, that chair is temporary. <laughs> the troubles of this life, the struggles of this life, the heartache of this life, the, <coughs> excuse me, all of the things that we despise about this, all of your money in your bank account, all of the lands that you own and the trust funds that you have and the retirement plans that you have, this is all temporary. But that which is unseen is eternal, says Paul. And therefore, Paul was able to endure and utterly disregard three shipwrecks, five beatings with bull whips, three beatings with rods, several stonings, several times of imprisonment, a couple of riots, a poisonous snake bite, and finally a beheading, all for the purpose of saving souls. I imagine Paul thought, what's well, a little beating if I can save someone for eternity? See, everything has to be in that perspective, doesn't it? That's what the, 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 the eternal gives us. It gives us perspective. Do they make fun at you at work for being a Christian? So what? I, I want to give you a whole new perspective. Do they make crude jokes and laugh behind you and your back? So what? I'm speaking to some people here this morning, you know, that might be in the, edu the educational field. Do they try to get you to do things for your students that go against your faith? So what? Do you get passed over promotion for promotions? So what? You need to look beyond the scoffers, the jokers, the persecutors. Get your eyes on eternity. Get your eyes on eternity. And remember, 
Remember that that one who treats you and speaks to you so cruelly and so mean is a soul that God loves that is headed for an eternity of separation from God, darkness and torment. Thirdly, third change of perspective. Viewing life in the light of eternity will cause us to value people more than property. We'll quit looking at people as mere physical beings, just pieces of meat, but as priceless, never dying souls that have only a short, perilous time of preparation here before they end up stuck somewhere in eternity forever and ever and ever. And my fantasy about the man who was permitted to return from hell to preach to his brothers, that's a fantasy. That's just my preacher's imagination to get our interest and to get ourselves to understand. There are no men being tormented in hell who are going to be granted a week to come back and to share with their brothers. The drunk man sitting in the ditch is just as important as the uppity man sitting on the throne in hell. It won't matter who sat where. It won't matter who had what. Our job is to keep as many as we possibly can from going there. And it's a job, quite frankly, we're not doing very well. Nor are very many of us even concerned about it. It's the thing that will matter at last. There's a true story told about a man named Charles Peace. He lived in England and he had been condemned of many, many crimes. And he had been condemned to death by hanging. Finally, the day of his execution came and he was being led to the gallows, out to the gallows by the chaplain of the prison to be hanged. As for the chaplain, this execution was just one more execution of so many he had attended before. Just one more criminal. Just another day on the job. Oh, I think how many of us in the ministry that have been called of God who treat our ministries just like another job. He's sleepily, almost asleep, and routinely, routinely began reading Bible verses about death and hell and the so-called consolations of religion they would use to prisoners who were about to die. Halfway to the gallows, Charles Peace began to think, this guy is sleeping while leading me to the gallows, to my death. This guy's half asleep. And he stopped in his tracks and he said, stop a minute. Hold on. He said, sir, if I believe what you and the Church of England say you believe, if England were covered with glass from coast to coast, I would walk the whole of it on my hands and knees if necessary to warn men about the eternity that they're facing. What a rebuke from a dying sinner. 
Yet it's it's a fairly active, uh, uh, accurate observation. The Christian church in general is yet to prove by actions that it really cares whether the world is lost or not. I thought about being a little bit more subtle, but that's not my style. Life goes on. We get up every morning and we worry about what color of clothes we're going to wear. We make decisions about the kind of toothpaste we're going to use. We argue about whether, where, and how to spend our extra money. We argue over who's going to have control of the remote control on the TV tonight. We dream about what's for dinner. We make our leisure plans for the weekend. We might even get a little spiritual. Go to a Bible study now and then. But when it's all said and done, we've really done nothing to extend the kingdom of God. Can there ever be such a thing as a Christian with nothing to do? I'm sure there are many Christians who are doing nothing. But there surely is no such thing as a Christian who has nothing to do. Men and women, God is calling for each of us to make our lives count for eternity. He does not call us to get bogged down and entangled with the cares of this earthly life. In 2 Timothy 2, Paul declares to Timothy, a good soldier of the cross does not allow himself to get entangled with worldly affairs. I wrote on my page, my Facebook page the other day and several people got rather offended. I said, while we, the church has spent the last generation trying to save America, we have seen a generation die without Christ. One fellow wrote me and he says, I know several believing college students. Several. Oh my God, shouldn't we get excited about several? Several. Yay! Turn on your news tonight. Look at the malls and streets and office buildings that are overwhelmed by people screaming and yelling and burning and rioting and looting and calling for the death of Israel and all of that. We have lost a generation to eternity because we have been having really good Bible studies. He's called us upward out of this world and he wants us to take everybody we can with us. We are not earthlings, my friend. We are citizens of heaven. And as such, Christ requires us. Can I use a word so stringent? Jesus requires us to live in this world as he would live in this world. To live in this world with the priorities He has in this world. To conduct the ministry that He left us here to conduct. And anything less, 
Anything less than that is not worthy of the one who died and shed his blood to pay for our sins. That great preacher, Jonathan Edwards, carried those precious gems in his pockets, walking around the fields of Northampton. He would raise his eyes to the heavens and he would shout what every one of us ought to be shouting. Oh God, stamp eternity on my eyeballs. Let me close by sharing this. I do not mean in any way to diminish the struggles we have, the heartaches we have, the burdens we bear, the concerns that we have, the attacks that come against us, the fears that we have. They are real and I don't mean to diminish them at all. But I do need to say this, and this goes as much to the quick of my heart as it might to yours. So what? There is going to be a day, if you are a follower of Christ, that you're going to see the most wonderful thing take place in the heavens. And you're going to hear the trumpet of God. And you're going to hear the voice of the archangel. And you're going to see Jesus riding on a white horse. And you're going to know that everything that you have suffered is over. But what? Amen. You can celebrate that. But, but while you're doing that, remember that while you're caught up to meet the Lord in the air, are countless souls that are going to face eternity just like you are. But they're going to face it in eternal torment. And many of them, many of them, many of them know you by your first name. And yet, they have never heard that Jesus loves them. So do not despair. Jesus is still seated on the mercy seat. Salvation is still available. Men can still be delivered. They can still be saved. They can still be set on a path to eternity that is in, in eternal bliss and joy and wonder with the risen Lord. But we must remember there are no evangelists coming out of hell with the smell of smoke on them to warn them. But there are men and women filled with the Holy Ghost who are armed with the Word of God and the anointing of God to share the gospel with those who are lost. If we follow Pastor Brian's vision of making this a place of prayer, May it also be a place that out of that prayer is launched men and women who are fearless about sharing the gospel. Who have eternity stamped on their eyeballs. Stand with me if you would, if you would pray. I want to do something this morning. 
I want to do something this morning. I, I want to explain t- something to you very carefully. We don't do a lot of altar calls here for people to get saved. I, I just I have a bias against that because so many people get caught up in a wave of people coming to an altar. They don't really understand what they're doing. So I want to say to you this morning, if you are not a believer, if you have not, if you have not accepted Christ, uh, you know somebody in this room who knows Jesus. I want you to seek someone out and I want you to say, would you help me? Would you help me come into a relationship with Jesus? You can do it right where you are right now. You can say, Lord Jesus, I, I don't want to spend eternity separated from God. I want to spend eternity in heaven, a recreated heaven and a recreated earth. I want to do that, and I know that the only way I can do that is by acknowledging you as Lord and Savior. And you can do that right now, right where you are. I would advise you, however, tell somebody about it. Let somebody pray with you. Let someone come alongside you and show you how you can learn the Word. You need to do that. But I tell you what I do do an altar call every once in a while is for believers who are willing to say, Oh God, stamp eternity on my eyeballs. I want to see life through the eyes of eternity. I want to live my life with eternity in view. I don't want to get caught up in the nonsense of this world. I want to become a spirit-filled, Holy Ghost-empowered evangelist who's fearless in the face of the worst critic to tell them that God loves them and He has a great plan for their life. As Pastor Brian leads us in this song, I'm going to invite you to stand with me here at the altar. If you are willing to say this morning, Oh God, stamp eternity on my eyeballs. Come on, right now. I want you to... Right now. Yeah.